It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE Community Show and this show are now also available on iTunes and Stitcher. So jump on there, subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. My name's Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-host Michael Steindl. Hi everyone out there. As you know, listeners, Beyond Zero Emissions is constantly working towards climate solutions, so we're really delighted today to have a guest who dedicates his work to strategies for low-carbon living. Scientia Professor Deo Prasad is an international authority on sustainable buildings and cities and among the leading advocates for sustainability in Australia. He has a really long history of working to improve sustainability of the built environment and holds qualifications in architecture, engineering, science and program management. Deo is the Chief Executive Officer of the Cooperative Research Centre for Low Carbon Living or the Low Carbon Living CRC. This is a national research and innovation hub that seeks to enable a globally competitive low carbon built environment sector. Hi Dario, thanks for joining us. Hi, pleasure. Dario, can you kick off by telling us, well, I was going to say all about, but <laughs> at least a bit of an overview of the Low Carbon Living CRC? Yes, sure. Uh, the federal government for many years has had a program called the Cooperative Research Centres Program. Uh, and under that uh, uh, the the idea is that uh, industry, uh, governments, and research come together uh, to to find solutions uh, for problems, uh, research challenges, and innovation. Uh, we we have state government, local governments, and uh, industry professions and research uh, basically put uh, uh, identify the problems and challenges together. And then go to federal government uh, to to look at uh, top up funding uh, to establish this cooperative research centre, which uh, has life of up to ten years or so. Uh, but uh, the whole idea behind that is that you not only looking at uh, uh, policy issues, creating evidence for better design in in our case, design and planning uh, uh, and and policies and so forth, but looking at products for the next generation keeping Australian industry uh, within uh, a competitive uh, sort of sphere uh, in terms of uh, where our cities are going. So we are looking at smart, resilient, sustainable, uh, and healthy cities of the future and what technologies, tools, and techniques are relevant. And at the same time, how do we... uh, do massive capacity build, attract talent, and create talent uh, so that we can uh, deal with our cities of the future. Uh, and that includes buildings and products and materials and so forth. 
Well, it's very reassuring that someone is sitting back and doing some holistic and proactive thinking about these issues. How how long has the CR, this CRC been in operation? So the Low Carbon Living CRC has been uh, around for about six and a half years. Right. Uh, and it, it uh, has a seven-year life, so it's got uh, only six months left. Mm. Uh, but uh, the whole idea is that uh, other CRCs would continue uh, the the uh, innovation challenge into the future. Okay, so what what happens at the end of the seven years with the, all the work that's been done? So we have built capacity at the nodes. We have had uh, research nodes in Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth and Sydney uh, as part of the membership uh, of the CRC. And the idea is that through networking and continuing uh, uh, to some extent as as a as a sort of network of research uh, strength to continue to uh, provide the similar, I guess, similar service uh, to, to industry and governments. Okay. So, um, so, but just so in, we... a, in a more loose way, it continues, but uh, without the top of funding. The yeah, idea <laughs> without the structure and the funding. Just hoping yeah. that those, those links that have been forged will be resilient. Yes. Dao, you divide your projects in the CIC up into three streams, as I understand it. What are those streams? Tell us a little bit about them. Sure. Uh, so, so buildings uh, are a key part of that. Uh, we are mm-hmm. looking at uh, innovations in building, um, new materials, uh, uh, technologies, tools, driving to zero and beyond uh, in terms of carbon. Uh, so carbon is our key metric. In the, in the CRC uh, and and buildings and the sort of the next uh, scale up uh, program area uh, then building is uh, what do we call precincts because precincts are a basic module of the city uh, so we look at urban issues uh, but uh, precinct at a time so to speak because that's mm. the scale at which development occurs. Uh, and then uh, the third one is uh, engaged communities. Uh, unless people are part of the journey, uh, it would be very difficult to go towards zero carbon and beyond zero carbon and so forth. So we are looking at uh, uh, better understanding community aspirations uh, in terms of uh, both consumer and market insights, why they buy products, why they use it, what, what they prefer when we talk about energy rating of homes. Uh, are they actually looking for energy rated homes or are they really looking for a comfortable home in the right location and so forth? And, and, and over time, so the CRC has long life, seven to ten years, and we track how things are changing over time so that that then informs uh, governments uh, uh, when they're looking at policies and programs. So those are the three programs, uh, uh, the building scale, the urban scale, and the community scale. It would seem to me that um, in many ways the, the first two are probably easier and that third one is the most difficult. Like Speaking personally, when I first got involved in climate change action and, and had my sort of oh shit moment, I thought, great, a technical solution, but it's not actually, is it? It's a psychological one. Absolutely. As part of that third one, you started the national social media conversation on energy-efficient housing. Um, it, tell us about that. 
Yeah, so so uh, with with the people side, uh, it, it, it's the most important, uh, uh, and and we have a whole range of things like living laboratories where we have active experiments going on at development scale to better understand and intervene and look at the impact of intervention and all all, all of that. But uh, in terms of the 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 social media side, I mean these. Tech, uh, uh, communication approaches we we try all sorts of approaches we we in addition to the social media we we started a platform uh, built for life and and within that we use social media to to pass the messages on to communities or individuals who are looking at upgrades and so forth uh, to to see okay this is how you do it and they they can uh, online uh, discuss issues of uh, material relevance, uh, technology relevance, uh, and we have a, a, a uh, group of people who would be, be part of that, servicing that uh, need for people to know. The large end of town, uh, the big big companies, they obviously have uh, access uh, to to experts and so forth, but the Hunter out there in the suburb wanting to add a story high or other extensions and so forth, which is large part of what uh, uh, the construction activity. Uh, they they don't have access. They just ask the next carpenter that comes along how how to do this. And uh, what we are trying to do is provide that access through social media and other means, uh, so that people can understand. Sometimes at no extra cost, you can do the right thing that has a uh, much more comfortable home or a, a lower carbon and less energy uh, home and so forth. It, it seems an extremely important part of your work, given the um, the fact that, the, as you say, the big companies get the true information if they wish to, but when so many of the public are actually getting misinformation from our mass media and from our arms of our government, it's a really important thing that you're talking about there. Yes, absolutely. And, and we have uh, independent uh, folks uh, at the other end uh, who are simply providing evidence-based information uh, for, for the particular climate and location and typology of building and so forth. Uh, pretty independent uh, information. So uh, we, we think that is uh, a good part of making the change. Dayo, you mentioned about the living laboratories. Can you tell us a bit more about those, please? Yeah, sure. So so uh, when, when, when you look at uh, experimentation, if you like, better understanding communities, uh, you, or, or on the other hand, uh, all these tools that say this is your five-star home or a six-star home, build this and it will stay a six-star home. Uh, but it's far from it. Uh, all research shows that uh, if you if you had uh, if you build a ten-star home and you put a, what, what, what's normally called two-star person and you get a three-star outcome. Uh, and it's <laughs> uh, a so two-star person, meaning that they don't really know about or care about energy and all that. They like the idea and bought a uh, what's called a ten-star, eight-star energy-efficient home. Uh, and and uh, the idea is to narrow that gap. That yeah. that uh, people do understand that you can actually save money, you can uh, you know reduce carbon and all the good things that come out 
of that. Uh, so living laboratories are real-time large developments. We have about 200 homes or so in uh, Adelaide, for example, Lockheel Park, uh, where we have done lots of work. We have got uh, about 100 homes in uh, Gum Valley in Perth and so forth. So there are real-time development. We are influencing things like Tonsley Development, which is a living laboratory in South Australia, looking at innovations uh, in this area, uh, and in other places by other means, uh, trying to simply uh, better study. We, we monitor hard data. So, so they're all private residences, all of these living laboratories? Yeah, people have moved in, yes. Right. Uh, so, so, so they were designed at a certain level of performance, uh, you know, stars and all that, uh, and, and that corresponds to a particular level of energy or carbon. And then uh, when you put people in, uh, things then uh, work out slightly differently uh, most of the time. So we look at, okay, so if this was predicted, where, where is the problem? Is it the building was not built and there were then the insulation's not in the right place uh, because it's behind the wall and nobody sees it? And so we look at, uh, there's a parallel study that looks at building diagnostics to what extent uh, that contributes to la- lower performance, uh, and uh, then talking to people and better understanding to what extent people side uh, co- contributes to to that uh, lower performance, uh, and and uh, if all of those can be fine tuned, then to what extent the tool itself was perhaps not telling you the right thing uh, mm. in terms of relative performance. So you could improve all those things so that you gradually move, not so gradually, hopefully quickly quickly move towards the zero carbon and beyond. Fantastic. Listeners, if you've just tuned in, we're talking to Professor Dayo Prasad from the Cooperative Research Centre for Low Carbon Living. Dayo, you talked before about promoting zero carbon living by bringing together industry, government and research and creating the evidence that, you know, decisions can be based on. Um, You had a recent example of some success with that about building code changes. Can you share with us about those? Yes, uh, so so we have uh, the uh, one of the peak bodies, uh, Australian Sustainable Built Environment Council, uh, which is uh, what you may call the peak body of all the peak bodies in this air, in the built environment area, and uh, they were t- uh, looking as part of their agenda uh, the whole issue of building codes because the building codes are not very stringent. They haven't changed for a while. Uh, and uh, if you were to uh, strive for zero carbon and beyond, you have to use multiple approaches uh, in addition to just promoting best performance. If you can get a trajectory done, which sort of plots the pathway to a low to zero carbon and beyond for buildings, uh, then you could use uh, an instrument like building code to chart that slowly. So, so instead of just building codes eliminating worst practice, it could head towards better and best practice. So wh- what we did uh, in, in collaboration with ASPAC, the Sustainable Built Environment Council, we started a project which the CRC funded to look at the business case and the technical case for a trajectory. So at the moment... Uh, sometimes when the government 
sort of felt like they would change the building code stringencies in this area. Uh, and uh, there was no level of certainty for the design, build professions or manufacturing professions uh, sector uh, in terms of uh, when building codes will change. In other words, they can make improvements or do capacity building to make sure people can do the right thing uh, by higher standards. Right, so there's uh, so no predictability in the process. No predictability, yeah. So what <coughs> we did uh, was look at a 10-year trajectory so that over the 10-year we can progressively, through a number of building code changes, project the reduction in carbon uh, through the building code process. Uh, and uh, that has twofold benefits. You actually have a pathway to zero carbon, with the building code as a key instrument driving that. And the second part of that is certainty. So a manufacturer looking at a change in 2025 can start looking at product development now because it knows that a building code change is uh, coming and they would be ahead of the pack if they had products that will support a more tighter, more stringent sort of code uh, requirements. So that's, we thought that's really a clever idea because uh, industry is behind it and, and research shows that the business case and technical case both are very good and, and there are opportunities for Australian manufacturers to be part of that journey. So it's a win-win. And uh, the COAG looked at uh, that and has uh, been very positive about it and referred it to the departments uh, to look at how that can be made to happen. Okay, so you've got some traction with government on that one. Yes, yeah. Ultimately, it's about uh, traction, I guess, if if governments can take that on board and implement that. Uh, it's nothing new in, in parts of Europe. They have that. In Denmark, for example, they have a trajectory approach, uh, and it's a rolling trajectory, and they keep changing what the 10-year sort of change would be in, 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 in building code uh, to, to look at carbon reduction. Dave, flowing on from that, as soon as you start to look at um, global warming issue from an academic point of view, immediately the two headings, mitigation and adaptation, come up. Um, and they're fairly obvious as soon as you start to think about it, the adaptation actually saying, well, this is happening and we have to learn to adapt to it. Mitigation actually saying, let's try and stop it. And in the case of organisations like Beyond Zero Emission, actually reverse it. When you your opening comments, you started to talk about resilience of cities and I was thinking you were talking more about adaptation. But actually, from what you've talked about since then, your work is primarily about mitigation, isn't it? Can you give a, a top-of-the-head breakdown for that and, and what sort of um, amounts you're hoping to mitigate uh, in terms of carbon release? So, so uh, mitigation is a large part of the work, uh, but we also look at uh, adaptation. Uh, uh, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, with uh, but with mitigation, we we are working on projects. We are, have demonstration projects already there, being measured, monitored with real families in them, which are zero carbon today. Uh, and you've probably heard of uh, uh, Josh Byrne, who is yes. on Gardening Australia. He's he's uh, one of our researchers. Yeah, and uh, the White Gum Valley development and a few other Western Australian so Josh's house is in Perth, isn't it? That's right, yeah, yeah Fremantle yeah, uh, right. area. And and uh, uh, if you went to his website, there's a whole range of zero-carbon homes 
that have been uh, documented and we looked at to what extent uh, by measured results they are zero carbon. So we are, as, as you said, we are interested in actual evidence, uh, yeah. if you like. Uh, okay, we tried all these things, we put real people in, and is it happening or not? Uh, so, and we are now looking at mainstreaming that project. So we are working with the big uh, developers and uh, today, actually at the Sydney Build, uh, Josh and I are presenting uh, some of the research in Sydney at the Horden Pavilion about uh, zero carbon uh, homes and so forth. Uh, we have also influenced other policies uh, in, in that mitigation area. For example, with the Victorian government last year, uh, the minister there, Lily Ambrosio, uh, launched uh, a policy with Josh being there on, on the launch pad with Lily uh, about looking at a number of uh, uh, housing, sort of mainstream housing, uh, aspiring developments uh, that are sort of going towards zero carbon. See, see to what extent mainstream builders can do that. So things like that, New South Wales government's looking at some of these things as well. So that's in the mitigation side. On the adaptation side, we are, and, and resilience you mentioned, we have a huge research program on uh, urban microclimates, for example, looking at as climate changes and, and temperature extremes, for example, here in Western Sydney and so forth, are are sort of quite high, 43, 45 degrees and so forth, to what extent we can adapt existing cities to, to, to not accentuate the, the temperatures uh, through urban heat island effects and so forth. So we have looked at, we have fully sort of mapped out that area from aerial uh, measurements, ground measurements, looking at the impacts of trees and vegetation and landscapes. We have looked at uh, what the next level, people, some people think that just massive planting of trees does it, mm. uh, but uh, there are limits to that. Uh, you cannot reduce, for example, in our studies in Western Sydney, more than two degrees C through just trees. So you have to go to water and water bodies. And then at the third level, you're starting to look at selective materials, uh, cool roofs, uh, facade colors and, and materials, uh, and, and road uh, replacement of tar, black tar with other materials and so forth. So what so sort that, of impact, Dio, can colors have? How significant a change can they color? affect? Yes. Mm. Oh, yes. Like the white roof movement. Yeah, the white roof movement is very strong. Uh, and it, in fact, it has been trial and tested in the U.S. Uh, uh, some years ago. And, and what is uh, the, the evidence around that? There's very strong evidence that you can actually uh, reduce temperatures, uh, both the heat going inside the building uh, and influencing the cooling load uh, mm-hmm. of the building in summer, uh, and uh, in terms of the mag- uh, surrounding areas. So, so you can go about a degree to degree and a half or so, but depending on the mater- other selective materials, you can go to two degrees or so. So in combination, uh, if you like, if you're looking at selective materials and colors with water bodies, with vegetation, you can reach about four, four and a half degrees C reduction well, which is significant uh, in that hot weather, isn't looks it? Looks like we're going to need. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And 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 uh, so we are looking at uh, through the other parts of our research new materials, uh, 
which can do that. Uh, we are working. People like Blue Scope are uh, part of the CRC, and they they are. Cool Roofs uh, program uh, is having significant impact. We, we On a 43-degree day, we had drones uh, looking at uh, Penrith area where it was uh, very hot, and we you could spot the type of roof from the top, mm-hmm. uh, the white cool roof uh, of uh, that blue scope. Uh, uh, by the infrared maps. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. So, so they go from red to white, uh, sort of colors from the top in the infrared map, and you can you can spot the type of roof they are. So these um, interviews always just get interesting, and we run out of time. We've got only a couple of minutes left. Can you briefly tell us about uh, your CRC? Isn't just limited to a domestic focus. It also did work with the UN and China. Yes, we did. So, so, so we, we, we look at a uh, lot of research in Australia, but uh, uh, internationally we uh, had the United Nations Environment Program as a member and, and, and we had uh, universities in Europe and China and Canada and so forth as members who we collaborate with. Uh, in China, with UNEP, we developed a, um, a guideline uh, that... Uh, uh, they asked for, uh, which was uh, to do with sustainable cities and communities. Things are different uh, in China in terms of the decision-making, governance processes, and so forth. So we try to tag in with them. We have lots of tools here, but the relative, uh, the indicator systems are different. Uh, in other words, their priorities, but the technical basis for performance is the same. So we develop tools that they can use, and uh, we have been back and forth uh, talking to cities with them to to promote the idea. And uh, five very large cities, when we say five large cities, we're talking about tens of millions of uh, people, mm-hmm. size, you know, altogether type city uh, populations we are targeting. Uh, and uh, they are adopting the tool uh, as a way vehicle for actually getting people to uh, progressively look at good ideas. And that's bigger numbers than all of Australia put together. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. So where can our listeners find out more, Dayo, if they want to follow up on any of these very broad topics that you've touched on today? So our website, uh, lowcarbonlivingcrc.com.au, or you just Google low carbon living CRC, you will find them. Uh, and we have a huge resource base there. We have uh, uh, presentations, we have education programs, we work with communities to uh, develop uh, sort of workshops and seminars where we can disseminate the information and so forth. Fantastic. And a lot of, lot of these are on the, on the web. Okay, yeah, so that website's a great resource. Thanks so much for your time today, Dayo. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. We've, we've been speaking to Professor Dayo Prasad from the Cooperative Research Centre for Low Carbon Living. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the Climate Change Solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe and help others find the show. If you can also chip in to donate to help cover airtime costs, then jump on the BZE website and click on the donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to joining you again next week. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing 
demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level.